Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Rod Sides of Deloitte. We talked with him a little over a month ago about Deloitte's overall holiday sales expectations, but this week we'll be talking to him about their annual holiday survey. We think it is the preeminent view of the retail consumer each holiday season, and we'll talk to him about that report that's been produced now for 37 years by Deloitte. In news, Tractor Supply Company well, makes the news for a couple of reasons. First, their earnings call, but also they're able to close a deal for another Midwestern farm and home retailer. And in our looking head story, Simon acquires a 50% stake in a mixed-use developer. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you enjoy the show, give us a rating. Those ratings do help others to check us out and find us if they're looking for more retail news content. All right, so let's dive in with Tractor Supply Company. Again, they released earnings on Thursday, October 20th, and we like to check in on them a couple of times a year because we get the opportunity to see how farm and home retailers fared in the late summer and how they're preparing for the holiday season. Tractor Supply, one of the few companies in this sector for which we get financial results and some of those overt plans. They're kind of a bellwether of sorts for the sector writ large. You include Atwoods, Big R, Baumgars, Runnings, and Thesons, as well as several other retailers in this space to a limited extent, kind of also serve as a proxy for larger footprint farm and home retailers like Fleet Farm and Rural King. Their analyst expectations coming into the earnings call were for earnings of $2.09 per share. They delivered on those expectations with earnings of $2.10 per share. And you know, keep all that in perspective. In the past, we'd say that Tractor Supply would also serve as a bellwether for the brand Orsulin as well. But those two companies are officially joining forces and closed out their merger on October 12th. So let's talk about that a little bit because we didn't get a chance to cover it with other larger merger information with Kroger and Albertsons. But it was announced on October 11th that FTC approval had been granted to Tractor Supply and Orsulin on that merger. As we've seen in the past, though, with retail, at least in the recent past, this merger deal is not without divestments required by regulators. Tractor Supply was approved to, in all, acquire 81 stores. 85 total stores will have to be divested off to two other buyers that were approved by the FTC. So the aggregate benefit to Tractor Supply is slightly slimmer than maybe they originally anticipated, but Hal Lawton, the CEO of Tractor Supply, said it was roughly in line with what leadership there expected. The deal will be financed entirely by Tractor Supply by cash on hand. And while the TSC press release didn't reference antitrust issues, Baumgartner's press release certainly did. So let's talk about kind of the breakdown and what's going on with this store base. The top line amount of the deal for the 166 Orsulin stores is $320 million. So that's the amount that Orsulin will receive. This includes the entirety of their store base. And then those 85 locations will be spun off by Tractor Supply Company to two other companies. Baumgars will take on 73 stores 
and Bookheight Enterprises will take on the other 12. These 85 stores in total will be had at quite a deal for both Baumgars and Bookheight, only requiring $72 million between the two of them. So the overall cost to tractor supply for the 81 locations that they will be retaining is $238 million. Baumgar stands to become one of the larger farm and home retailers in the country after the deal. By our count, they'll be up to 180 stores, assuming all acquired stores do stay open going forward. This is a company based in Iowa. They've got locations before this deal throughout the Upper Plains and Mountain West, privately owned by Roger Baumgars still, and they'll see their state count overall, not only their location count, but the number of states they're in, that'll balloon to 15 from just seven. Like I said, mostly in the Upper Plains and the Mountain West. Now they'll have a footprint as far south as Texas. And Baumgar's CEO, Tori Wingert, said their part in the negotiations took around 18 months and also noted that their part of the acquisition will include Orsland's Moberly, Missouri distribution center to maybe handle some of those more southern stores. Tractor Supply Company did confirm that the stores acquired will be remodeled to the tractor supply brand over the next 15 months and likely going to see the same from the 71 stores acquired by Baumgars too. Baumgars has a history when they do acquire another farm and home retailer of remodeling the stores or at least changing the branding to the Baumgars branding. With the additional footprint, Tractor Supply now sees runway to 2,800 stores in the U.S. in the future. Now, after the merger, their current store count rests at over 2100. Finally, they expect these new stores to add 10 cents per share to 2023 earnings for their full year and also $300 million to their 2023 top line sales. So now let's talk about Tractor Supply's third quarter once we've addressed the merger here. Their 10th consecutive quarter of sales growth was this third quarter. Overall revenue growth now for Tractor Supply of 65% in the last three years alone, including both new stores and benefits from same-store sales. From a sales perspective, it was, as you could guess, a record quarter for Tractor Supply. Overall net sales were up 8.4%, but comps also jumped 5.7%. New store sales accounted for 2.2% of their overall sales, but comps really getting the job done and right in line with the around 5% increases we saw earlier in this year in both the first and second quarters. And when you look at comps, it seemed to have been inflation, overall basket size, and also number of consumables getting the job done on the comps front. Ticket grew 7%, while transaction count was actually down 1.3%. Part of this was because of the drought for a portion of the country, and that likely impacted their comps. As far as transaction count in particular, they mentioned the Texoma area, as well as some of the southern mountain states being hurt in particular by a drought compared to previous years. But the rains did come, the heat did back off, and things turned around a little bit for tractor supply at the end of the quarter. One of the reasons why they tabbed a lot of the blame on comps maybe not being as robust as they wanted. You see transactions, in fact, back to flat in September once the weather abated and once some of that rain came down for Parts of the country, well, some of the country still in severe drought. In terms of which category drove comps to the greatest extent, I mentioned it was very much what they call their Q category, or consumable, usable, and edible. 
Year-round product categories in general did well for Tractor Supply during this third quarter. Just how strong were these Q products? Well, they comped at around 3x versus the rest of the store. So obviously, moving a lot of these consumable products. It bears noting that the increase in Q products in their overall mix did negatively impact gross margins slightly, as their margins in this category are lower than margins on, say, big-ticket merchandise or seasonal merchandise. Also, the increase in Q sales means a mix in inventory needs too, or a change in mix of inventory needs. Their inventory on a per-store basis is up, especially when you look at the last three years, but it's actually down as a percentage of sales versus where it was three years ago. Supply chain bottlenecks for them have mostly eased, but their buyers are having to make adjustments to focus on these Q products. And while they don't feel as though they've left any sales on the table as a result of maybe not having inventory, empty shelves, they didn't feel like that was a problem in the third quarter. But what was a slight issue was this dramatic shift in mix resulting in them seeing higher cost to run this consumable product through their supply chain in a more expedited fashion. They're having to really push some of this product through from acquisition to stores and that's resulting in higher supply chain costs and even further erosion in margins. Also, when you look at their consumable products, one of their most popular products at Tractor Supply, both at the mainline stores, at their PetSense stores as well, is dry dog food. Dry dog food ran over 20% comps in the quarter. So people buying a lot of dry dog food now at Tractor Supply Company, regardless of the store label. And dog food in particular very difficult to move in quantity. So you're looking at pallet quantities of this dog food having to move in and out of the supply chain quickly. So trying to get on top of that, they feel like they have a pretty good hold on that for 2023, but they have seen some growing pains as consumable sales have ratcheted up over the last 12 months. Still, on the whole, net income for them increased on a dollar basis by 4.3% up to 234.1 million. Their robust income numbers, you look at that 234 million, really speaks to why they were able to finance the Orsulin deal out of pocket. If they wanted to, they could just finance it with the earnings from a single quarter at the store. Aside from growing by acquisition as they did with the Orsulin deal, tractor supply still growing organically. 11 new TSC mainline stores, and also PetSense is back into growth mode. They added two stores during the quarter, and this is their first net growth in a while. They closed five net PetSense stores in 2021, and they were even in store count through the first two quarters of 2022, so perhaps a positive sign for the PetSense banner. As a company, they continue to focus on their garden center proposition and their Project Fusion store format. Lawton, the CEO, again, said that now 25% of their store base has been refurbished to that Project Fusion format. Additionally, 260 garden centers are now in operation for them, and that makes up about 15% of their store base. In the past, they've relied on a bit more of a seasonal setup for garden. You saw pop-up hoop houses, maybe pumpkins moving in every now and again during the fall months, but they want to make garden a more permanent fixture in certain markets as a way of bolstering those seasonal sales that did suffer a bit in this past quarter. In the third quarter, seasonal and big-ticket categories actually posted negative comps. Mowers, in particular, took a big hit for multiple reasons. First year, of course, lapping the stimulus payments from last year. But second, they mentioned they were lapping a few hurricanes 
from last year during the quarter as well. And so you saw maybe purchases of generators, as one example, falling year over year. As far as seasonal sales are concerned, they're looking to counter their softness there by amping up Halloween and harvest offerings for Q4. They said signs are positive to this point, but they're carrying more of that inventory than they've ever carried in the past. And also, they're looking towards more long-term plans, especially for the spring season. Next year, they're planning a number of garden center additions to their store base prior to next spring. So they want those in place before the big lawn and garden season hits. And you have to think that about 20 to 25 percent of Tractor Supply Store locations will have permanent garden centers within the next few years. Now, as we wrap up this story, a few quick hits. They finally rolled out live inventory counts to their website and their app in the quarter. They credited this as one of the reasons why their digital sales were actually up high single digits over last year. It was one of the more significant increases we've seen across the retail landscape so far for the late summer, early fall season. They're rolling out a co-branded credit card with Visa as well in the fourth quarter. Should be out any week now. 5% reward being offered on Tractor Supply Company purchases, but it's kind of amazing that they don't already have a co-branded credit card. They feel as though this could grow some of those larger product sales or high-dollar product sales that they missed out on maybe in this last third quarter. And finally, the Project Fusion stores I mentioned, they're increasingly focusing on in-store vet clinics as well as mobile clinics where markets support it. So look to see pet services as an even bigger part of their plan in these Project Fusion stores going forward. All right, so we talk about Tractor Supply. We talk about their acquisition of Orsulin and another solid quarter for them. And I think the farm and home market overall doing pretty well. It does bear to mention, in terms of pet sales, I mentioned dog food sales going up. That's something you're seeing in general, but particularly Tractor Supply is gaining market share on the rest of their competitors. So Maybe those pet product sales not as robust at the whole of farm and home given market share being gained by tractor supply. But still, this gives us a little bit of an idea of where farm and home stores are at heading into not only the holiday season in 2022, but starting to think about the spring seasonal season in 2023. Well, coming up after this break, as I mentioned, we'll be joined by Rod Sides, the Deloitte Insights Leader and Retail Partner at Deloitte LLP. He will join us to talk about their annual holiday survey. It's the 37th year they've done that. We'll talk about expected cadence of holiday sales, expected product mix, and we'll also talk about what retailers could or should be doing to capitalize on what's expected to be a very big year for gift cards. We talked a little over a month ago about Deloitte's overall holiday projections, but we teased in that interview Deloitte's annual holiday survey. This comprehensive look at shoppers has been produced now for 37 years and often provides the definitive look at customer thoughts, behavior patterns, and plans going into the holiday season. Without a doubt, it is our favorite Deloitte report each year, and to discuss the 2022 version further, we're joined by Rod Sides. Deloitte Insights Leader and Retail Partner at Deloitte LLP. Rod, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you again. Now, this survey was released just this last week. 
Obviously, I previewed it a little bit, but could you provide a little bit more background on Deloitte's annual holiday survey and also the scope of the research that goes on here? Yeah, normally what we do is make sure we go out into the marketplace just past the Labor Day weekend. So we were in the market from September the 6th through the 13th, and we did two things. We talked to a number of consumers, almost 5,000, about 49, 80 plus, and a pretty geographically diverse across the U.S. We want to make sure that we understand what's happening regionally. The other thing we did this year is we surveyed 40 retail executives. So we wanted to compare what they thought was going to happen and the steps they've taken with maybe what consumers tell us their shopping intent would be. So it really is pretty comprehensive, as you said earlier, in terms of getting a view from both the consumers and from retailers in terms of their anticipations for the holiday season. And we'll talk about those retail executive views here in a bit. But first, As I mentioned, we discussed Deloitte's overall holiday expectations, but based on this survey, could you paint us a picture of what the overall economic landscape is looking like from the consumer's perspective heading into the holidays? We think the consumer is still going to be very cautious. Inflation is going to be a major part of their purchasing decisions and really, you know, looking at how much they're going to spend. So what's really interesting is the total amount that's planned to be spent is about the same as last year. So you know, for us, it was really interesting to see what that looks like across the board. And when we think about the impact of inflation, we're seeing things like fewer gifts on the list this year. And then there's a little bit of a mix change in terms of how much people are planning to spend across specific categories. And I know we'll probably get into that in just a minute. But one of the things that's really interesting is about 37% of folks said that they expect their financial outlook to be worse than it was at this point last year. And so, again, that whole notion of what's happening in the economy, the cost of energy, the cost of food, et cetera, certainly is weighing on their mind. So you mentioned, and obviously, a lot of changes between this year and last year, yet in aggregate, you look at it and you expect spending to be right around where it was one year ago. But there are some large changes and a lot of things that we'll focus on here in terms of changes from 2021 to 2022. But I think At the top of my list, personally, is the number of gifts, which you mentioned, the number of gifts might be going down this year, and the amount of time shopping as well. What did consumers say about these time and gift expectations this year? Well, the number of gifts that shoppers are planning to buy is nine, and so that's down from 16 last year. So qualifying to be on the list is going to be a little tougher this year. So you know, hopefully we've all been pretty good and we find our way to the top of that list, but that is going to be a challenge as folks are really drawing back on the number of gifts that they're spending And so as a result, I think it's going to really mean that folks are going to spend a much more focused time in the market in terms of when they plan to shop. So the duration we're seeing start to shrink in terms of less weeks that folks are going to spend actually doing their shopping. So all of that is really interesting, given that so many of the folks are starting to shop earlier this year than they did in the past years. And you mentioned that early shopping season. Of course, we saw some of that last year with shopping stretched out a little bit. Big reason for that was supply chain concerns, out-of-stock concerns. What are customers' expectations of -of out-of-stocks this year? And you mentioned you interviewed a number of retail executives. What do retailers themselves think about -about out-of-stocks going into the holiday season? Well, the interesting thing is I think there's a consumer perception that the supply chain issues are maybe more pronounced than they actually are going into the season. So that's going to really weigh on the specifics of kind of what they're thinking about as we go through that. So one of the things we know is that, you know, about 77% of consumers expect stockouts. And it's really interesting. 
you know, they're thinking across most categories that's going to be the issue. So probably the number one culprit that folks are worried about are electronics and accessories, toys and hobbies, et cetera. And so we're seeing those increase year over year. But when we talk to retail executives in terms of tell us about your concerns about supply chain, your ability to deliver, 100% of the respondents said they anticipate receiving the ordered quantities in time for holiday. So they weren't nearly as concerned about it. Now, there was some concern about did we purchase enough? So only 60% were comfortable with the volume of merchandise that they purchased. But you know, last year, everyone was worried about, am I going to get the items in time? This year, the executives aren't nearly as worried as they were last year about that. That is very interesting and it may come down to, once again, that merchandise mix. And did they order enough or maybe too much coming into the holiday season? Now, you already mentioned 37% of consumers said that they felt like they were in a worse financial position this year versus last year. But when you look at the income groups across the board, I think there's some encouraging news here from low-income shoppers specifically who are looking forward to this holiday season. What was the income group breakdown like in terms of planned spend, and why did we see perhaps this bump from low-income shoppers? You know, last year, there were a number of people who told us they were sitting out the holiday season, especially in the lower-income group, and not spending at all. And so this year, we're seeing a 25% jump in the average spend with the lower-income group. So again, from about 536 to 671 on average. And yet we're seeing the higher income group actually decline from about 2624 down to 2438. And so what's really interesting is that I think a lot of folks in that lower income group have just kind of settled into where we are from an economic perspective and have chosen to participate this year in the holiday season. So from that perspective, I think that's going to be what's really driving that increase among that group. And likewise, when it came to maybe shoppers that were towards the top end of the income bracket, what did we see there? And could we expect maybe a little bit of a pullback from 2021 there? Well, I think that's part of it. I think folks are, you know, trying to manage their budgets a little bit more tightly than they have in the past. And, you know, as we're going into the season, a lot of the durable goods that we've talked about in the past, we continue to see a lot of softness there. Gifts as a category have remained somewhat constant in terms of growth. I think there's a 1% growth in that particular grouping. But the non-gift purchases, which is where a lot of the higher income folks really participate, is down 12%. And again, the non-gift side of the equation. So I think that's what's accounting for a fair amount of the erosion that we're seeing on the upper end. Now, I want to circle back to one of your first discussions regarding this particular report. And you mentioned we'll get into categories later. Well, later is now. Let's talk about categories. Which categories here are poised to see maybe a little bit of a bump from last year? Which categories might see a pullback? Well, what we normally find is that apparel does extremely well through the holidays, and we're going to see that as well. So apparel is going to probably be the number one category, at least in terms of shopping intent. However, that growth is not very pronounced between the two years. Gift cards, however, are up year over year. And, and we expected that as we went into the season so that we could understand that folks can control their budget, I think, a little bit better with gift cards in a lot of instances than they can for specific items. And to a large degree, it's probably easier. So gift card giving, on average, is up about 7%. Clothing and apparel, as an example, the projection is that spend there will be about $262 down from 304, but still the number one category. And we normally find, you know, clothing, accessories, apparel, and gift cards to be one, two. In this instance, the gift card spend is up to about 252. 
every other category, we're seeing a fairly big decline year over year in terms of total spend. So again, I think the gift card season is going to be pretty good as we go into the spending over so the next six weeks. Well, hey, let's take a second to talk about gift cards because as you mentioned, big jump from last year to this year. And obviously they've been slowly growing in popularity over maybe the last five to 10 years. I'm curious from your perspective, from the retailers that you're talking to, looking forward, maybe even into Q1 of 2023, what are some things that retailers could or should be doing to maybe take advantage of those gift card sales, knowing that they're going to have customers coming back to their stores, maybe being able to capitalize on additional sales and impulse buys there? Well, I think there's a couple of things they can be doing. I think if you target promotions around the gift card and, and you know, who knows, there could be some discounts that you could offer around use of those items, I think is going to be really key. And then making sure you're able to continue to convey the value, especially post-holiday. With our study, what we normally do is look at shopping behaviors between November, December, and we include a lot of January in our earlier projections that we talked about about three or four weeks ago. The reason why we do that is we expect a lot of those card redemptions to happen kind of in the, the late December, early January timeframe. So I think having a very specific strategy of being able to have folks come in and, you know, making sure that the promotional offers are very clear and available probably makes a lot of sense for retailers to do that. Instead of just having essentially the gift card hub and display, how do you incent your customers to come back? And, you know, when you use a branded card, being able to have an additional kicker, perhaps of a discount or something like that to draw them back into the store is going to be a big part of it in terms of making sure folks leave those dollars with you. So we talk about gift cards being up as a category. You mentioned apparel and clothing. And I think one of the most interesting things as it pertains to apparel and clothing is it was a very preferred category when you talk about resale sales and resale sales, a big story in this particular report. What are we looking at in terms of the number of people who are planning to buy resale items? And also what are retailers saying about maybe providing these refurbished or used items to the consumer that obviously seem to be thirsting for them in 2022. Yeah, it's really interesting. About 32% of our respondents said that they plan to buy resale items for the holiday season, which is, it really follows a trend that we saw pre-pandemic. So we were seeing the growth of resale kind of in the 18, 19 years. And then it flattened out, as you might well imagine, in 2020. I think that a lot of folks are worried about the safety and concerned about if I get something from resale, you know, do I, do I have to cleanse it in some different way, et cetera? It bounced back a little bit last year, but we're seeing it grow here. And in terms of the most preferred categories, to your point, clothing apparel is number one at about 51% of the respondents saying that's where they would go. So what's really interesting is when we ask people why, the number one reason is to save money. So again, it gets back to this notion that you know, from economic perspective, it's just a little more challenging and folks can probably get some better brands, better gifts using resale. So it really does come back to saving money, affording something. And it gives folks a chance to try some new products, new brands, potentially, you know, without having to invest as much. Now, retail executives, 48% said their company will sell refurbished used items this holiday season. So they have caught on to the fact that this is a major part of the thinking. And I also think with retailers, there is this notion of, you know, how are we playing into this more sustainable, more circular economy? And are there some things there that I should be doing and offering? Because we know that there's a number of our consumers now that are starting to be concerned about, you know, sustainable products. In this particular study, one interesting thing is 39% of the folks that we talked to said that they would choose sustainable holiday gifts when possible. And so I think this whole notion of resale 
plays pretty nicely into the importance of sustainability now in the consumer's mind. And the report certainly notes that we're seeing more and more consumers begin to be sustainably minded in terms of searching for their holiday gifts. Switching gears now, let's talk about channel. It seems as though brick and mortar might be making a comeback as far as your survey data is concerned. What channel preference did customers report on the whole? And how does this also match up with maybe retail executives view of where channel spend will be coming in? Yeah, what's really interesting is the average spend of the total is about 63% is expected to be online versus in-store. But to your point, in-store is up from about 33% of the total to 35 this year. And so what's really interesting is we had reached, I think, an equilibrium point back in, say, 2015-16 in terms of the mix. And as we saw digital accelerate through the holiday season between, say, 17 and 19, we really saw a jump in sales through the digital channel. And then obviously in the pandemic, we saw it you know, go from 59 to 64%. So quite the rise. And then last year, we found it start to moderate. Now, I think we're at a, to me, a kind of a new equilibrium. It says, you know, somewhere between 62, 64% this year, it happens to be 63. It feels about right in terms of the breakdown between where folks are. Now, what's really interesting to your point around the retail executive view is 66% of the executives expect online holiday shopping traffic to have, you know, single digit growth year over year. And so that's down a little bit from where we were in 2021. But I think executives realize that there's so many of us who use the online channel now from a shopping perspective that that's really become the norm around that. And about 73% expected in-store holiday shopping traffic to have single digit growth. So again, they're seeing kind of the overall growth to be roughly equivalent, you know, all in the single digits across both channels. So that's what leads me to this notion that says we are maybe at a new equilibrium in terms of the mix between in-store and online. And when it comes to those digital or e-commerce sales, we certainly know that our phones have been more prevalent for those in recent years. But mobile shopping, social media use, influencer use all seem to take a big jump this year, despite maybe not seeing that big jump in expectations as far as e-commerce sales. What were the findings on this front regarding social media use and how people are searching out or maybe pricing these products? What's really interesting to your point is we are seeing the smartphone come back pretty dramatically. What we found is there was a pretty big flip during the pandemic because more people are at home, they're on their PC, et cetera. And so the use of mobile phone has come roaring back. And as you were suggesting, about 34% of the respondents are planning to use social media at some point during the shopping journey. And when we talk to folks about, okay, how are you going to use that? Certainly folks, about 36% say they're going to use it to make a purchase. 37% are going to go to social networking pages that are, you know, brand specific, et cetera. And so we know that more and more people are using that as a shopping aid as we go. And what's really interesting is when we ask about you know, who's going to use social media for shopping by generation, Gen Z is a full 60%, millennials 56 and then we have a pretty big drop down to Gen X and boomers. So the Gen X is about 28, boomers are at, at about 15, and seniors a little bit less, just under 10%. So what's really interesting is, you know, when you get to the millennials and younger, Social really does matter as a key determinant of where people are going to shop and how they're going to shop. So it is going to continue to grow in importance. And we'll close on this. You mentioned earlier on that maybe people would be doing more of their holiday shopping within a condensed time frame, but it doesn't mean they won't necessarily be getting started as early as they did 
last year. In fact, many of them could be starting as early as October, as you indicated. What's the overall cadence expectation and what are we seeing surrounding maybe the traffic on Black Friday and the Black Friday weekend? Well, what's really interesting is I think folks are looking for those events that are going to allow them to take advantage of promotions. And so we are finding that there's a large number of folks who are going to shop on those particular days. And I think that's going to drive a lot of behavior. You know, the question we always get as well is Black Friday dead. Well, based on the response this year, we would say, no, it's not dead. And there's going to be a large number of folks who are out in the stores looking for that. And so, you know, if we think about it year over year, we're seeing growth in folks who plan to shop on Black Friday. So that's up to 29% of the total respondents, up to 25. Cyber Monday is up from 27 last year to 30 this year. So what that tells me is that we so condition the consumer that they're going to expect those kinds of deals. And we may see lines back in front of stores. And we haven't seen that for a couple of years because of the pandemic and having to be six feet apart, et cetera. I think there's a good chance, especially with Thanksgiving Day shopping being down, that to a large degree, folks will come back in mass in the stores, especially on Black Friday. And ultimately, it'll be up to those retailers to deliver on those promotions this year. Well, as always, Rod, we thank you for the time. Thank you for stopping by. And also, we appreciate everything the folks at Deloitte do to put this report together. I think it's very insightful regarding the holiday season. Well, it's my pleasure. And wish you a happy holidays a little bit early this year. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we appreciate Rod joining us on this week's episode. Coming up next week, by the way, we'll continue to preview 2022 holiday sales. We'll be joined by Rick Watson of RMW Commerce Consulting. He'll talk a little bit about what we can expect from the e-commerce sector as far as holiday sales are concerned for this coming year and what some of those retailers can do to maybe grab back share of wallet from customer spending on things like travel and services and moreover what some direct-to-consumer brands can do to gain back some of the share of wallet that they may be losing out on to larger e-commerce players such as Amazon and Walmart. We are looking forward to that conversation. And speaking of looking forward to things, we're looking ahead at a retail real estate story involving Simon Properties. They have acquired a 50% stake in Jamestown. Jamestown is really an A-class, or I would consider an A-plus class, mixed-use developer. Recent Jamestown products include Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco, as well as Constitution Wharf in Boston and Ponce City in Atlanta. And the whole idea here behind some of this acquisition might be diversification for Simon. Obviously, Simon always looking to invest in areas where they feel like there will be a monetary payback, a tangible monetary payback for their shareholders. But it could be that this investment might be more than just as an investment. And that's really the question here. Is Simon doing this just as an investment or do they see a potential to tap into some of the knowledge and resources at hand with Jamestown in terms of mixed use redevelopment? And this calls to mind our conversation on the show last week with Ward Camp of Northwood Retail about their own company's experience. Northwood has 
Of course, divisions that deal in multifamily residential has divisions that deal in office and hotels as well. And he talked a little bit about how that informed some of their mixed-use retail developments. Perhaps Simon is doing the same here. When you look at what Simon has done throughout their portfolio, throughout their own portfolio, they've been able to keep a number of their properties relevant despite this backlash against malls and despite the fact that many of their malls are not these open-air centers where we're seeing this traffic flow to. Simon, directly, they've actually performed pretty well over the last year when you compare it to the overall mall industry. So I would think that Simon certainly would use some of this crossover knowledge that'll be provided by Jamestown to maybe inform some of their decisions going forward. Maybe there's an ability to subcontract in the near future. I don't think this is a losing proposition at all for Simon, but I am anxious to see exactly how Simon taps into some of these resources or if they tap into some of these resources at all. Of course, because Simon is a publicly traded REIT, we will get details on this during not only Simon's next earnings call, but once the deal has been completed and once this is accretive to Simon's earnings, if at all, we'll get further updates in the future, no doubt, from David Simon and company. So looking ahead to that, really for 2023 and 2024, looking to see any action that Simon might have on the construction, reconstruction, or renovation front. That'll do it for us this week. Once again, as always, a big thanks to Layton helping out behind the scenes. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week. We'll be back with you seven days from now. Thank you for listening. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.